I'm looking for a child, age three to grade six, who is the arm wrestling champion of the world. Come on up, Ian. Self-proclaimed. All right. So in order to make this fair, we're going to provide you with four options for an opponent. So come on up. Can you reach up here? If I, can you? All right, we're good. Okay, we're good to go. All right. Who would like to face Ian in an arm wrestling match? Yes, come on down, sir. Right there. Grayson, come on down. Somebody over here. Yeah, Tibor. <laughs> no, not Tibor. Children. We need a third potential opponent. Yes, ma'am, or sir. Sorry, Harry, come on down. Thought that was one of your cousins with their arm up behind you. Yes, sir, come on down on the back. All right, we got three. All right, and maybe David. Where's David Thorne? There he is. All right. So I need to move my Bible. Oh, he's got the sunglasses. All right. All right, Ian, so in order to make it fair, there are four numbers in this hat, okay? So we're going to be number one, number two, number three, and number four. So you get to choose your opponent at random, all right? Pick out a number. What number is it? Four, all right. All right, come on up, David. We ready? All right, I want, I want this to be clean, boys. <laughs> Go! Oh, 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 oh. Yep. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Thorne. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. The sermon title this morning is Humbled. One of the lessons from the illustration is there's always somebody bigger and better, but bigger than that is the adults will be learning God is always the one that we need to live life in light of. And so to be humbled or to be humble is to live life recognizing that God is in control of all things and not us. Thank you so much for being such a good sport. So if you are age three up to grade six, please head down to your continued time of worship downstairs as the adults continue to worship upstairs. For those remaining in the auditorium and watching online, take your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Daniel. That has been the book we've been in since September, Daniel chapter 4, and this morning we want to look at verses 28 through 33, verses 28 through 33. In full disclosure, all of the numbers in the hat were number four. I've had a few of my illustrations not work up here, so <laughs> I had to stack the deck. 
Daniel chapter 4, verses 28 through 33. This chapter's been building to this. And as mentioned, this is probably not the same Nebuchadnezzar as we met in the first three chapters. That Nebuchadnezzar is Nebuchadnezzar II. This is Nebuchadnezzar III. Nebuchadnezzar used as a dynastic title as opposed to the individual's actual name. This is probably Nabonidus, who usurped the throne from the line of the two Nebuchadnezzars before him, holds the title uh, even though not the same Nebuchadnezzar as in chapters 1 through 3. He has exalted himself as previous Nebuchadnezzars have done. God gives him a dream. He gave the first Nebuchadnezzar a dream as well. He has given the interpretation of that dream, which we saw last Sunday. And now we're going to see the fulfillment of that dream. Before we read, though, perhaps in your Bible, you have a subtitle that says Nebuchadnezzar's Humiliation. How many of you have that that appears in your scriptures? Okay. I would submit to you that there's a difference between humiliation and humbling. Humiliation is an attempt by external forces to make someone feel less than they actually are. It is something that is designed to deride an individual, to mock them, uh, to make them feel less than. We might suffer a humiliating defeat, and we won't talk about the hockey game last night. We talk in terms of humiliation when we talk about someone, this isn't an internal thing. The individual may or may not change inside, but externally, others, a group of people, or one person in particular, is attempting to ridicule this individual and bring them down. I would propose that rather than Nebuchadnezzar being humiliated, it is God's intent that he would be humbled. Humbled is what God intends to do internally. It's an internal change. It may happen because of potentially humiliating circumstances, but the difference is that the individual themselves changes when they are humbled. It's an internal transformation. When you are humiliated, you may actually exit that experiencing, experience with more pride than you even went in with. Humiliation can have the opposite effect of humbling. Teams know this. It's why they hesitate to run up the score when the team that they are playing is having a particularly bad night and they're having a good one. They don't want to crush their opponent lest their opponent use that in subsequent games as motivation. We can be humiliated without being humbled. And what God intends in this passage is to humble Nebuchadnezzar, which thankfully we'll see in verses 34 through 37 a positive result to that. So if you have your Bibles, then hopefully you're there in Daniel chapter 4, verses 28 through 33. If you don't have a Bible with you, we try to provide one for you, because here at Grace Baptist, everything we do is founded on and rooted in Scripture. These are not our thoughts or our imaginations. These are not our pet peeves 
or preferences. This is thus saith the Lord, and we want you to have a copy of the Bible in front of you. And so somewhere along the uh, chairs, under, underneath the chairs in front of you, there should be a copy of God's Word. And in that particular copy, it's on page 694, 694, Daniel chapter 4, verses 28 through 33. So let us look then at humbled from this passage. Follow along with me, if you would, as I read this morning. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. This is the word of the Lord. So all that has been building now in chapter 4 comes to fruition in the text before us this morning. There's been a lot of anticipation building here with how the chapter opened, with Nebuchadnezzar giving away the ending before we even started or as we were starting. We have the dream and then the interpretation of the dream and now we have this coming to pass in Nebuchadnezzar's life. It's a hard thing to learn things the hard way. And this, unfortunately, is Nebuchadnezzar's experience, as it is oftentimes ours. Nabonidus, if indeed this is Nabonidus, had a wife from the kingdom of Media. We'll meet the Medians and the Persians in just a few short sermons after we get over the Christmas season, because they come into effect in the latter half of Daniel. But uh, she is from a mountainous region, and Babylon is on the plains, and so in order to simulate the mountains of his wife's homeland, Nabonidus has constructed one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, extended the walls of the ancient city of Babylon across the Euphrates River, spanning it with a 400-foot bridge with a wall at least 40 feet high, that's the height of the Ishtar Gate, which still remains and on top of that wall, it is said that a chariot pulled by a team of four horses could do a 360 on top of the walls of this city. Indeed, it is a magnificent piece of architecture. And Nabonidus stands on this and proclaims his greatness. I hope you saw all the personal pronouns, and God humbles him. So what can we see from this passage then before us this morning? In the first place, only God can truly humble anyone. That is something that we take a long time, oftentimes, to recognize and realize. It ought to humble us and drive us to our knees in prayer. But far too often, 
we attempt to humble others and even ourselves by our own strength and in our own power. But only God can truly humble anyone. Verse 28 is the key verse of the passage, and it comes to us in the first part of this section. All this, what is all this? All this is what has come previously in the chapter. The dream and its interpretation, it just simply says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. God does this. And he does this not because he hates Nebuchadnezzar, not because he desires his harm, but he desires his best. And the key theological concept that we must always keep in mind is this. There is a God, and he is not us. I am not him, and you are not him. But he does exist, and he is the Almighty One who reigns and rules over all things, who brought all things into existence through his own voice, out of nothing, and rules and reigns and is in control of it all. And that is something that I think we struggle with every single day to recognize and realize and live in light of. There are many calls in Scripture for us to humble ourselves. But far too often we live life as if God does not exist. And therefore, God needs to humble us. And so, notice in the passage then that God controls the future. Three times in this chapter there is a similar phrase. And so, as one commentator put it, because they don't have italics or exclamation points or bold this is a way that a Hebrew author has to highlight the importance of something is repetition. Notice verse 17. To the end, this is going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest, lowliest of men. Verse 25. Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Verse 32, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. We like to make much of ourselves. We tell stories, almost invariably, we're the heroes of it. We edit details, leave things in or take things out to make us sound better, look better than what was actually real. We present ourselves in a way that is authentic. I have rarely seen on social media someone's worst day. We typically post our best day. Although there's even an app that I've recently been introduced to called Be Real. And the idea is that you're told by the app when you're supposed to take a picture and you're supposed to just be real. However, they give you a period of time to take the picture in and I've seen be real people being less than real as they get ready to be real. <laughs> However, sometimes we're even real in an attempt to get people to feel sorry for us and so we might share some of our not so nice moments on social media, but even that has us at the center. <laughs> we put ourselves at the center of all things, and we like to think that we're in control. We like to think that we can manage the future. If I do these things, then this will be the result. We like to live with the illusion 
that we have a measure of say in the outcome of our life. And the message of the gospel is that that is not the case. God is the one that is in control of the future. Nabonidus has an elevated sense of himself. He's at the center of his own story in a very profound and public way. He is the monarch after all. And yet what he needs to learn is something that David has, Daniel sorry, has come to know is that God is in control of the future. Before Daniel was born back in Judea, there were some evil kings of Judah. After he's born, shortly after he's born, there's one of the greatest revivals in the time of Judah. And all he's known then is the reading and the studying and the praying over and the executing of and obedience to the word of God. And when he's about 15, God sees fit to have him kidnapped and dragged off to Babylon where his name is changed, his religion is attempted to be changed, his diet is changed, everything about him is changed. And yet what anchors him is this, God is in control. God controls the future. And now as an older man, he still understands that and tries to get Nebuchadnezzar to understand that. And as still an older man, we're about to head into the story of Daniel and the lion's den. And despite the pictures you may have seen in Sunday school, Daniel is thrown into the lion's den at roughly 80 years of age. God is in control of the future, not us. But God is also in control of the present. Did you notice the tense? God rules, not will rule. God the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. Even though his kingdom is different than the kingdoms of men, something that has been brought out by the dream given to Nebuchadnezzar and reiterated by Jesus in front of Pilate, that does not mean he is uninterested, indifferent towards, or not in control of the kingdoms of men. No, God Most High not only will rule and controls the future, he does rule in the kingdoms of men. Nebuchadnezzar, this may be in your mind the great Babylon that you have created, but none of those things were done without my permission and without the strength and the life that I gave you. And when you do not give me credit, when you do not give me worship, you need to be humbled. The truth needs to pervade in your life and in your mind, which it does not currently do. And so three times again, God says, the Most High rules present tense in the kingdoms of men. No politician, dictator, or tyrant gains their position without Almighty God in control of all of that. He brings kings into positions of authority and he takes them back out. He is in control of all things, not only the future, but the present as well. As we saw last week, and we won't belabor this point, but if this amount of power, this magnitude of authority was invested in anyone else, it would be scary beyond imagining. And yet we know the character of our Most High God. He graciously gives warnings. He is under no obligation to do so. He's already in the future. All things continue as he designs them to be. And so he's under no obligation to let us know those things. And yet in his grace and mercy, he does. And he comes to Nabonidus, to Nebuchadnezzar in the form of a dream. And notice Daniel is dismayed when he gets this dream and its interpretation. It alarms him that something of this 
magnitude could happen to Nebuchadnezzar, to one minute be standing on the hanging gardens of Babylon in all of his royal robes. Is not this great Babylon that I have made? And in a second to lose his mind and to be reduced to an animal and to act in an animalistic way. Daniel's shaken by this. And in verse 27, he breaks with protocol. Prior to that, when he'd given the interpretation of a dream, that's all he had done. This is the dream and this is the interpretation. But in verse 27, he pleads with Nebuchadnezzar and says, Please listen. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Nebuchadnezzar Please listen to the implications of this dream. God is giving you a glimpse of your future so that you will change in the present. And yet, what does it say in verse 29? At the end of 12 months, he's given a full calendar year to repent and nothing changes. He is lifted up with pride and that has not gone away. And so in the last place, we are again reminded that God always keeps his promises. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. God had said, Nebuchadnezzar, you need to humble yourself. You only have your position because of me and you have been given it so that you will serve and glorify me and do that by sharing my character with those under your rule and reign. You have been given authority to help, to provide, to protect, to guide. You have been given authority to act like me, to act in my place for these people. But if you abuse that authority and use it to advance yourself and exalt yourself, don't forget, I, have, I don't close my eyes. I don't go on vacation. I don't require rest. I see and I will come and I will humble you. And he lets him know a year in advance. <laughs> but it still happens. Do not confuse God's mercy and grace with God's forgetfulness. It says in Peter that people mock that God has not returned Jesus has come. We celebrate his first advent this time of year. And they say, where is the promise of his coming? Nothing's changed. And they mistake God's long suffering. They mistake his patience for his indifference. Don't make that mistake as Nebuchadnezzar did. And so in verse 30, we see that Nebuchadnezzar does not indeed humble himself. Because he answered and said, now who he's answering, we don't know. Is this his own sort of private thoughts or is there actually a group of people? But his statement is one of pride. I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. Any thought of God in there? Any, any notion of the Almighty, the Most High One who gave him this position of authority and this glory? No acknowledgement whatsoever, no worship of God. And so what happens? God humbles him. This voice falls from heaven while the words are still in Nebuchadnezzar's mouth as he's still speaking. This chilling pronouncement falls from heaven. 
This will happen to you as it was prophesied. You will be driven from among men and become like the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over you, probably seven years. And notice verse 33, that chilling first word of the verse, immediately. This is not a gradual change in Nebuchadnezzar, that over the span of some weeks or months, he gradually starts getting a little strange. Immediately this takes place. And so he's driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his hair grows as long as eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Imagine being in the position of authority and majesty and glory and might, and then losing your senses and becoming basically an animal. Now, there have been documented cases of lycanthropy and boanthropy that we know from human history, but really the focus is not on what was his medical condition. The reality is this is a supernatural intervention that God takes place in his life. And we know from antiquity that Nabonidus is away from Babylon for at least a decade. Not much said about this period of time. He's at his other home in Tema, and it's very probable. In fact, it is from scripture that this is the time period that he is out to pasture, so to speak. I'm not sure if you've had the awkward situation of trying to explain the behavior of a weird relative, but I'm not sure how his servants sort of, is Nebuchadnezzar in? Uh, sorry, he's busy. <laughs> it's grazing time. Um, the yes, I suppose, the humiliation of this, but better, the humbling of this. This is what God intends for Nebuchadnezzar. You think that you are God, and you act as though I do not exist. I can't ignore that. The truth must be told and realized. And so I'm going to show up and remind you that you are not God. And so, how do we apply that to our lives today? I want us to focus on the final point on Jesus. You cannot help read this passage and think of Christ humbling himself. Go with me to the New Testament, if you would, to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. We went here just two Sundays ago, but I want to key in on a single verse. Philippians, chapter 2, and verse 8. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8. And being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself. Now, if the biblical definition of humility is a recognition of God, a recognition that we are not God, but that God is God, and submitting ourselves to that truth and enthusiastically worshiping him in light of it, then the only being in existence that never needs to humble himself is God. Not that God is proud, because we can't simply think in opposites, but if the statement that I'm not God is the, uh, is, is the definition of humility, then the only one who, can, who can't make that statement in truth is God. 
So the only one in the universe that does not need to humble himself is God, because it's a true statement when God says, I am God. He says that to Moses, I am. It's not pride, it's sharing the truth. So cast in your mind's eye, if you would, for just a moment, Christ. Jesus, it says in John 17, shared glory with the Father since before time even began. Go back in your mind as far as you can and farther than that into infinity, which never had a beginning. God the Father and God the Son are sharing glory through the Spirit. He is God with all that that means. And yet, out of love for you and for me, he humbled himself, something he'd never had to do. Not that he had pride, but he did not need to, he could not make the statement that he's not God. Now, he did not cease to be God, obviously. He is 100% God, but he also put on humanity. He incarnated himself to become one of us and still is today out of his love for us. So if you saw the coronation of King Charles, all of the pomp and quite a bit of circumstance that pales in comparison to the glory of Jesus Christ the righteous. If you think Nabonidus could look at the hanging gardens of Babylon and say that this glory and majesty that I have built, it is nothing compared to the glory of Jesus Christ the righteous. He is light. You can't see him, God tells his servant Moses. You can't look on me. You can't stand in my glory and still exist. And Jesus Christ the righteous at these heights humbled himself to become one of us, as we saw as we opened the service, the video, to incarnate himself and to become a baby, to go through all of the process of human maturation for us, to fully identify with us. There's nothing like this anywhere else. Everything else out there says, you're down here, but if you follow our plan, our steps, our book, you can go up. Only the gospel says, Jesus came down. God's up here, but he came down for us. He had a humble mentality, 1 Peter 3.8. Peter says, clothe yourself with humility and have a humble mind. Christ's mind was a humble mind. He didn't feel the need to impress. He never had any insecurity about who he was. I'm still reminded in his temptation in Matthew 4 as well as some other Gospels. When Satan says, you're hungry, you've had 40 days without solid food, turn these stones into bread and eat them. Jesus never once used his power for his own benefit, even after going over a month without food. His whole mindset 
was the glory of his father, submission to his father, and love for you and for me. If anyone had the right to believe themselves to be majestic and glorious, it would be the one who is the definition of glory and majesty. And yet he came down to become one of us, but not... was humble, uh, uh, just serving the people and sharing uh, good with them. Just amazing. And he encourages us then in number two, letter B, to pursue humility. Repeatedly throughout the Gospels, he brings a little child to them and sits them down and says, unless you become like this little child, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So what does that do for us or what should it do for us? It should create in us, those of us that know him and are known by him, an attitude of humility. That we continually give him praise and glory and honor. And understand that our lives are not about us, but they are in fact about him. But it should also humble us and remind us repeatedly of the gospel that we can't do that on our own. We can't go five minutes without pride entering into the situation. We need the gospel just as much as we contend other people do. And as it relates to other people who do not yet worship God, it ought to cause a lot more prayer and a lot less of our tactics and schemes and different things. Only God can humble the human heart. Only something that big can right-size our hearts. Because in our minds, we're awesome. But in reality, there's only one who's awesome, God. <clears throat> so we need the gospel. We need this good news in our lives. We are not God, but there is a God. We are accountable to him. And in his presence, we are sinful and selfish and lost and undone. But he loved us enough to condescend to come down and become one of us so that we could be in his presence. This is the gospel. This is what we need and my prayer is that we would humble ourselves <clears throat> and not need to be humbled by God. Because if we do not humble ourselves, God will humble us. And that is not something that you want to walk through. Just ask Nebuchadnezzar. Let's look to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, as we move into our time of communion, help us to indeed be humble. We recognized at some point in our lives, if we are believers in you here this morning, that we could not save ourselves. And so in humility, we bowed ourselves to you and repented and trusted in you as our only hope. And yet, Father, this is not a message that we needed in the past exclusively. This is a message we need every single day because we get up off of our knees and 
consistently stop having that mentality and move into our strengths, our talents, our gifts, our intellect, and we forget practically that you are the only almighty one. So Father, help us to humble ourselves to the grace and mercy that you alone provide. And help us to pray a lot more than we currently do. Because only you can change a human heart. And help us to be grateful for those moments, Father, when you do humble us and remind us of the truth. That there is a God and it's not us. So humble us, Father, and help us to humble ourselves. Certainly, as the example of Christ shows us, but more importantly, as the power of him in us through his Holy Spirit enables us to do so. May we indeed recognize you in all things in our lives. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.